Hello and welcome to the Cycling Industry News Podcast. Now, I'm really, really thrilled this episode to introduce Jay Townley from Human Power Solutions. Now, Jay, you've been quite a big uh, figure within the bike industry for many years. But in fact, you were just telling me where you started in the bike industry. So could you share that with our listeners, please? Oh, certainly, Sean. And it's a pleasure to be here, by the way. Um, I, I started in the bicycle business in 1953, working in a bike shop in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I worked, went to work for uh, two partners that had just bought a uh, bicycle and skate exchange and fix-it shop. Um, they had both worked. Um, Art Engstrom worked as a welder for the Great Northern Rail- Railroad. Uh, his very good friend, uh, Howard Hawkins, uh, was selling welding supplies. And so uh, they bought uh, Hazel Park's, uh, it was, as I say, it was Hazel Park Fix-It uh, and uh, Bicycle and Skate Exchange at the time they bought it. Um, I went to work for them in 1953 and actually went to work in the winter when I was in junior high school and uh, was a skate runner, which uh, in the wintertime in the neck of the woods I lived in, um, the skate sharpening was a big business and, uh, they sold skates and used skates and did sharpening. And my job on Saturdays, uh, was to, uh, take skates that needed sharpening, put the, uh, tag on them, get them back to Howard who did the skate sharpening. And when they were sharpened, get them back to where we could uh, give them back to the customers and, uh, followed that by going uh, to work in the bike shop. Um, and, uh, over the years was trained as a bicycle mechanic. And I think I mentioned to you, I was a terrible wrench, awful. <laughs> um, although, um, did go to Stan Natanik Schwinn service school. So I have a Schwinn service school certificate. Um, but wisely, uh, Art Engstrom counseled me, um, as I was, um, Banding, putting band-aids on my hands for the uh, umpteenth time that I had uh, bunged things up, uh, trying to be a service mechanic, that I should go into sales with him because Art ran the front and Howard ran the, the service department. Uh, and so I got, I became enthralled, quite frankly, with selling um, and uh, was quite good at it, I might say. And so I was able to uh, do that through junior high school. In high school, I was blessed in that um, I was taken into a distributive education class, which in that time um, in the educational um, environment in St. Paul uh, was a class where young people that wanted to uh, get into retail and into other trades that were not, not going to college could get into. And so I got uh, into distributive education. The bike shop became the place where I got school credit for working as a salesperson and learning from them. And by the way, I did well enough um, at that, that my grade point average went up and I was accepted at the University of Minnesota where I wanted to be a distributive education teacher. Um, Now, without boring you with all the detail, I stayed working in the bike shop during that period of time, Um, met the love of my life, uh, who was Violet, who was extremely uh, uh, helpful to me after he got married and helping me write a sales and management course, which um, through Howard and Art's good offices uh, was sent to the Schwinn Bicycle Company. Um, they in turn, rather than buy that course from me, uh, interviewed me and hired me to go to work for the Schwinn Bicycle Company in Chicago, Illinois uh, in January of 1966. 
So uh, what I was explaining, Sean, is that I, I come from retail. I, I was hired by Schwinn initially to be able to bring the knowledge I had of the bicycle retail business to the company. Uh, and then my job was to work with George Garner, a name that you probably don't know, but if folks will look it up, uh, George Garner is the individual who is responsible in the United States, at least, for getting bike shops out of the back alleys and back streets and putting them on the high streets with beautiful, well-designed stores with full glass and all of the features of retailing of the late 50s. Uh, when I got to Schwinn uh, in 66, my job was to help put together a sales and management school to complement the service school. I uh, worked with a gentleman named Harry Delaney, wonderful man that, that was the sales school instructor. Um, and we applied our joint knowledge. And then I, we both worked with George Garner, uh, who was the premier retailer of the time, and uh, developed what was called the Total Store Program. So in brief, without asking, uh, you were asking any more questions, that's, that's my background that took me to the Schwinn Bicycle Company in 1966. Well, fantastic. And anyone that visits humanpoweredsolutions.com and clicks on about us, they'll see your current resume, which is almost intimidating. It's so broad. And of course, 60 years working in the industry, you're going to develop a skill set. And it looks like you've kept on learning. You've stayed fascinated, stayed interested. And you're Job title includes data analysis and reporting, market analysis, P&L analysis, and there's many, many, many more bullet points, those, and I won't list them all now. And it seems you've got quite a team of incredibly intelligent, well-informed, experienced people as well. So when Mark, my editor, asked me to speak to you, it was originally to talk about um, home country manufacturing, but and we will cover that in depth. But of course, there's so much going on in the world economy right now. There seems to be so much more that we can get into that you're, um, you know, very um, up to date with. And in fact, I was just reading one of your very, very latest articles um, from July, The Future and What It Used to Be, which as an avid fan of sci-fi, I can completely relate to. So I'd love to be touching on some of these broader points and then hone into that home country manufacturing, which seems to be taking off again. So if we start off then looking at the global mega trends and you know, looking at where we've landed, you know, which is what your article was about, where we've landed with um, COVID and supply chains, what it's done to supply chains, but then going a bit broader onto these megatrends and how it's going to affect the bike industry. So do you want to start and just fill in the listeners a bit about your analysis of what's happened to the bike industry supply chain, both before, during, and hopefully after COVID? I'll do my best. And uh, you certainly can uh, ask questions and interject, and I don't want to go on and and uh, and not have touch points to, to clarify. But um, the bicycle business uh, in the course of the COVID, as the COVID has changed many things in this world, it changed the bicycle business. And my perspective is looking at uh, the American bicycle business, but um, I do reach out. Uh, I talked to uh, Mark Anderman, 
who is an analyst and uh, researcher with uh, Sports Marketing Surveys, uh, which is a UK-based company. You may know Mark. Um, but we talk on a regular basis about oh, every month, month and a half, and compare notes between North America and Europe and the rest of the world. But what I found um, in doing the uh, U.S. Bicycle Market Overview reports for the last 20 years for the National Bicycle Dealers Association is I've got this nice comparative database uh, every year looking at the market in detail because the NBDA has uh, actually been uh, very cooperative in this, but uh, I've been uh, the entity that has renewed our contract and working with them and, and providing this uh, base for the research. Um, what we all knew as the bicycle business in America and probably England uh, and, and the continent as well um, in years past was pretty stable, pretty regular. Uh, in the case of the United States, we became an import dependent bicycle market uh, totally about the year 2000, but had been edging mm -hmm. toward that from 1990 forward. Um, unlike Europe, and England, where you've got bicycle manufacturing in country. And to, to clarify, a bicycle manufacturer is defined as uh, a company, a manufacturing uh, concern that makes the frame and makes the fork and some of the other componentry. But the key is a manufacturer manufactures frame and fork. An assembler buys all of the componentry, including the frame and the fork, may do the finishing, painting, but assembles the, the end product into a bicycle or an e-bike. So in the United States, we ceased uh, assembly of any appreciable, appreciable quantity and manufacturing um, definitely by 2000, which was also a year of transition for the American bike industry because the industry in 2000 also made a conscious decision to um, promote and actively promote the sport of cycling and you might remember this as the Lance Armstrong era, which we mm -hmm. could go into and talk about, I'm sure you and I, for hours. But um, that was the transitional year when the American bike industry promotionally and collectively, and this was uh, People for Bikes today, it was Bikes Belong Then, um, made a decision that it was going to promote the sport, not the activity. Prior to that, they, the promotional focus had been the activity from the 1970s in the, in the original bike, room, bike boom all the way through the decades up to uh, the year 2000. From that point forward, the emphasis was on um, the sport. And so that opened a lot of things up. And uh, you can segue quickly to uh, all of the top-tier American brands sponsor UCI teams or in the case of Trek, own a UCI team, which is not an inexpensive uh, proposition at all. Um, but the American industry um, split between the bike shop trade, which is the upper end of the business, down to the midpoint. Then in turn, at the middle, you've got sporting goods stores. And below that, you've got the mass merchants, the largest of which are Walmart and Target. Walmart being the largest retailer in the United States and the world, uh, it's the largest employer in this country, and they sell more bicycles than anybody else, but it's mid to low end product. So uh, that as the background um, was uh, what the industry uh, had 
done from the standpoint of shifting the type of product, but had also by 2000 gotten really into the, uh, if you will, the JIT, the just-in-time cycle and methodology of uh, a brand in the United States. And let's take Schwinn, who I worked for for many years. Um, in the early 80s, Schwinn shut down domestic operations, and for various reasons, we moved all of our production uh, to outsource with the bulk of that going to giant in Taiwan. We became a major importer. Uh, we had a, a portion, about 10% was uh, in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, had gone to Murray, Ohio, and we moved some equipment there. But eventually that also shifted. Uh, and so we became, um, within six months, we went being, from being a manufacturer to being an importer. So we saw both sides of this of this dynamic. And what occurred after Schwinn started the offshoring, other brands, other manufacturers also picked it up. And we all got into the rhythm, if you will, uh, that goes along with JIT. And that is the idea that, uh, it, and it's a very, very practical idea, by the way, that uh, you want to uh, make sure that you're doing good forecasting at the market side, you understand the consumer, you match consumer demand to the forecast you're putting into your plants, uh, in our case, starting in Taiwan, but now throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, the plants are sending forecasts onto the component manufacturers, take Shimano or SRAM as examples. Um, that in turn goes to subcontractors all the way through a supply chain so that um, the goods arrive at the various stages of finishing, including assembly, then put in a box, put in a ship. The ship then comes to the United States. It's offloaded, gets into a warehouse, goes to a retailer, and then on to a consumer. And back in, and I'm, I'm making this quick, but trying to put some pegs out there that we can look at and go back to if we need to. Um, I was eventually at Schwinn, Vice President Purchasing and Logistics. So I spent seven years where I worked on the team that uh, went from this make to uh, production operation to a make to order house. And so I was involved in the whole process of, of the order flow of the forecasting and the firm order from a manufacturer or brand in the United States to an OEM in Taiwan or China, who in turn put out their orders for the componentry. And we got into this rhythm that for over 20 years, up to the COVID, you would, as a brand, put your purchase order out. It would go to the OEM. You'd done your forecasting. And the lead time was 45, 40 to 45 days. So from the time I pushed the button and did firm order to my OEM in Asia, I would have finished goods um, in my warehouse uh, ready to ship to my dealers or consumers in 45 days. When the COVID hit, March of 2020, and I remember it very clearly because I was sitting in the last day of uh, a Chicago Area Bicycle Dealer Association or CABDA trade show in uh, the East Coast, in the Meadowlands, uh, between New Jersey and New York, um, and uh, watching, uh, sitting at the bar watching television. And at that point, the, the NBDA, NBA, the National Basketball Association, announced that 
because of the COVID, and this was uh, March of 2020, they were no longer going to have games that they were uh, going to uh, suspend the uh, basketball season and other sports followed suit. And as you're aware, uh, from March 2020 forward, the world changed. Mm. And in our case, that 45 days led out or moved out over time, month by month, progressively growing to where it was 130 days, 140 days. And COVID interrupted the flow. And because of the delays, because of the disruptions, because of the constant uh, disruption in the order flow of bicycles to the U.S. market, the industry, like a lot of other industries, like many industries, went from a JIT, a just-in-time marketing and management and production and forecasting flow. And this truly was a well-oiled machine. So that, um, again, because of the accuracy that we put into the forecasting, the steady means by which the industry ordered and, and oiled its ordered per merchandise and oiled its machine um, to produce and deliver, uh, we were used to this 45 days being able to keep sufficient stock to make sure that the stock to uh, sales ratio was always in balance, somewhere between four and two items in inventory for every one we sold at retail. Um, when the COVID hit and the leads time, lead times moved out to 120, 140, 160 days, uh, we, like a lot of people, uh, switched over to JIC, as it's called, just in case. The whole mm -hmm. philosophy of it's better to have it, if you can get it, get it. That well-disciplined mm -hmm. approach we had of JIT, and by the way, the Taiwanese taught this. Uh, JIT, just in time, is a product of Toyota. It is the culture of Toyota. And I, I can make this quick as well. Shimano has been in the uh, automotive business. About 10% of its volume is done in uh, cold forgings for the automobile industry for Toyota. Shimano learned its J JIT methodology from Toyota, then in turn taught the Taiwanese, primarily Giant and Merida, and the Taiwanese industry had a thing called the A-Team for decades. Mm -hmm. And every year, the A-Team would send a delegation of the managers, the mid middle and uh, senior managers from the manufacturing companies for parts, accessories, rubber, bicycles. They would go to Japan and they would, through Shimano's influence, go in and be taught by Toyota at their schools about JIT. And they brought that methodology back to Taiwan and then to China so that it was grounded in. It was a methodology that the bike business was run on. And the COVID threw that up in the air. All the disruptions, all of the changes, uh, all of the inability of get pro to get product from point A to point B to point C in a timely fashion or to be able to push that button when I wanted it and I wanted to take my forecast to make it a firm order and I would have product from Asia to in my hands in the United States ready to distribute in 45 days. So uh, we went over to JIC as many other industries did just in case. Now I'm old school. I know that when you build inventory it's dangerous. It creates many problems in the market but the demand for bicycles and e-bikes in the United States 
had grown almost exponentially in the period 2021 going into uh, the latter part of, of 2021. Uh, huge amounts of product, enormous amounts. It wasn't the bike boom, by the way, that, that many in the U.S. industry touted, but it was good. It was big. There was a lot of business done, in particular e-bikes. E-bikes surged in 2021, mm-hmm. um, becoming a major factor in the market. And so that was across all of the different changes that the e-bike brought to the to the bike market uh, in the 24 months uh, of 20 and 2020 and 2021. Um, that was a lot of change in a very short period of time, both in the supply chain, in the philosophies of manufacturing, the philosophies of uh, the OEMs of the brands of the manufacturers of the of the. Uh, providers of bike product to the market in the United States, including Walmart. And what the big difference was is we couldn't get stuff, so we ordered what we could get when we could get it. Mm-hmm. We banked up inventory. Inventory became, uh, believe it or not, I've used the term hoarded. OEM yeah. componentry was hoarded by the Taiwanese and Chinese plants. And in the United States, Finished goods inventory was banked up and hoarded. We went to just in case from the JIT yep, and yep. months upon months. So the last numbers that I saw were for inventory to sales in the first quarter of 2022, the ratio had gone to seven to one, seven units in inventory for one sold. And the other thing that occurred is that during this period of of surge of consumer demand for high demand for bicycles and e-bikes, and by the way, definitionally, um, the NBDA, our company, others are using the term bicycle to cover what are known in the United States is also including class one and class two e-bikes. So bicycle is, is, a, is a universal term because that's the way uh, the definition in the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission um, is laid down. And that is that it includes pedal-only bikes and then bicycles equipped with a pedal with a 750-watt motor that can achieve 20 miles an hour um, when propelled with a, rate, a, a rider of a specific weight um, across a level surface. Uh, that that motor, electric motor, can uh, propel you no uh, faster than 20 miles an hour. And again, I apologize for the U.S. Uh, metrics here, but uh, that's obviously what we live with. Um, so at any rate, that's that's the definition of a bicycle. And the inventory that built um, was appreciable. It was a huge over uh, inventory overhang. This the the other occurrence here is that consumer buying habits had changed. And during the COVID, the big shift was consumers were in the United States were isolated. They were, um, there were stay at home orders. They were, you know, we still have not uh, seen a shift of, of workers back to offices. Um, you've still got a high percentage of, of office workers that are working from home at least part of a week or all week. But what occurred in consumer buying habits in the United States, and this also occurred in England uh, and, and on the continent, uh, is consumers uh, who, in the United States at least, were getting checks from the government 
uh, because of the economic impact of the COVID, had money, uh, couldn't get out, and uh, they weren't going to their favorite restaurants or favorite bars. So they started to buy stuff. And since they couldn't spend money on services, restaurants, entertainment venues, they spent money on things, on clothing, and not so much clothing, but on TVs, on computers, on home office equipment. Um, And so they bought stuff. And some of that stuff was bicycles and fitness equipment. Um, the, the brick and mortar side of the bicycle business very quickly became in the United States identified as an essential retail service, uh, particularly because of the service component that bike shops offered. So bike shops were allowed to stay open and were allowed to do curbside service and managed to work with their customers, uh, in various ways that would fit into the, uh, cautions that were taken relative to social distancing and the COVID. So uh, there was a, an active retail trade that evolved in 2020, as well as a very active and growing direct-to-consumer trade. Um, what you know had been Amazon's purview for uh, for a good 10 years prior became every merchant's purview. It became um, you know, the, the Walmarts of this world have ex- expanded, as did Target, their direct-to-consumer component, uh, the mail-order component, or the uh, buy on buy online and ship direct-to-consumer component. And that's true of some bike shops as well, uh, and certainly of some bike brands. Mm-hmm. So the bike brands in the United States did a, a slower shift, but a shift to we're going to deal with the consumer directly. We're going to take a consumer order on our website. We're going to ship that order directly to the, uh, to the consumer and the, we'll arrange for the assembly. Uh, either the consumer will do it or we'll arrange for the consumer to take the bike to a dealer or to somebody else to do the assembly. Mobile service being a part of this. So um, in the uh, period of 2020, 2021, we had a complete shift and change in the way consumers bought. We also had another phenomenon occur, and this was documented in 2021 by the National Bicycle Dealers Association, who contracted with sports marketing surveys in their U.S. office, uh, run by Keith Story, um, and a um, very good, high-quality, direct-to-consumer survey was conducted. Um, The survey showed a number of things. First of all, it went into the detail of who bought bicycle products um, in the two-year period of the COVID. And one of the things that uh, it showed very clearly is that um, just under 30% in round numbers of the adult consumers who started to ride a bicycle during the COVID were absolutely new to cycling. Yeah. Had never ridden a bike before. And another in round numbers, 27 to 30%, depending on the category, the riding category, were returning cyclists. They were adults who had not ridden for a number of years and came back to cycling. Now, that left about half of the cyclists that rode during the, uh, the pandemic as people that had ridden bicycles consistently uh, for, the, for the years prior to the COVID coming. But the key finding here is that a pretty good chunk, um, about 30% of all of the adult consumers that started to ride bikes and rode bikes 
during the pandemic were new to cycling, had never ridden before. The demographic finding there was that they were younger than what the mean average was for cyclists in the United States. Uh, they also were slightly lower income and there were more women. So we uncovered a different audience, a different clientele, a different group that rode and bought um, and bought in large measure. And within that also bought direct to consumer, bought online. So you had a, a change in the buying habit. Meanwhile, the system is looking at the market the way it did pre-COVID. It continues to order on the basis of, well, I can't get JIT to work for me. I'm going to just, I'm going to buy just in case. Because somewhere along the line, the misinterpretation was that this surge would continue. That the consumer demand would continue. And it would continue in an uptick manner that there would be no drop off. Um, and what occurred in the bike business is that started in Q4 of 2022. And so the inventory build, you know, the, this is relatively simple, but uh, in this bigger picture, it's called the bullwhip effect, which is simply the consumer is the handle. And so a consumer goes to three stores wanting a particular product. Those three stores go to their suppliers and state consumers came in and want that product. Um, the supplier uh, looks at how they're going to order that. And this would be a, a bike brand. The bike brand goes to the OEM and says, uh, we've got demand for this product and we want more. And the number increases as you work your way back into the supply chain all the way to the supplier. So. Um, we had a situation that uh, changed dramatically from the standpoint of who was buying bikes, who was riding bikes, the demand for bikes, and then the way in which bikes were ordered. And all of that, and by the way, uh, also uh, the, the idea that somehow this JIC approach, if you can get it, get it, put it in the warehouse, would continue because you'd have an ongoing consumer demand. Mm -hmm. um, you can have that demand online or you can have it brick and mortar, but, you know, at least said there would be a constant demand. In the case of um, the, the bike industry, we get to the first quarter of 2022. Demand has been down for two to three months. Consumers are not coming in. Footfalls in the stores are down. But yet the JIC system has been continuing to operate with huge logistics constraints. Um, you've probably heard the stories, but on top of the, it's now taking me a long time to get my goods into the country. Part of the reason for that delay was not only what occurred in the source country, which by now is China, um, in the United States, pre COVID 97 to 98% of all bicycles sold in this country, inclusive of e-bikes were manufactured in mainland China. The, uh, for various reasons, uh, there were tariff problems that were introduced uh, during the Trump administration, this, the so-called Section 301s that placed a 25% punitive tariff on bicycle products. And in the case of e-bikes, there was no tariff at all from China, and that became 25%. And that tariff has been on and off, depending on various exemption rules. But essentially, uh, you had a much higher tariff that occurred during the, 
U.S. tariff for importation from the primary source country to the point where uh, by 2022, um, and you go through 2021, uh, China represented, uh, even with the punitive tariffs, pretty close to 88, 89%. So it had come down a little bit fractionally, but the, the punitive tariffs did not have the impact that they were intended to have. What they did is they, they increased the cost. They led to the inflationary problem that we've got today um, and did it by steps. But in any case, um, you know, you had a situation where as we get into the early part of 2022, where the bicycle providers down through all of the retailers, Walmart, bike shops, Toys R Us, Dick's, I'm sorry, Toys R Us was out of business at that point, Dick's Sporting Goods, um, had more bikes than they've ever had before in inventory. They paid more for that inventory than they'd ever paid for. And because of the delays that were occurring and the disruptions that were occurring, and this goes now to the ports in the United States where you've got these huge backups, um, I think you're aware that uh, 40% roughly of all U.S. imports into the United States from China come through the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And then you can add Oakland to that. There are 29 ports on the west coast of the United States. They uh, account for a huge amount of the import into the U.S. And the backup at one point uh, that led to this delay in getting product in was there were over 100 ships, container ships, waiting to get into the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. Um, and some of them were pushed out uh, 100 miles offshore waiting to get into the country. So, you know, all of that uh, was leading to this desire to have it and to buy it and get it in stock. Not really thinking through clearly the financial ramifications, particularly for the bike business. I can't speak for other industries. Um, so that is what I was trying to get across uh, to the, uh, the, the bike industry from about December of 2021 through the latest article in July of 2022, that um, the you know, the, the quick way to look at it is I used to work for a guy named Bill Austin, who came to Schwinn as a senior vice president. Bill went on to become president and first president of Giant in the United States, Giant Bicycle Company, um, and and worked in the industry through the uh, Bicycle Product Supplier Association, heading up the stats committee. But when I worked for Bill at Schwinn, he had a mantra. He said, inventory is evil. And you can look at that a lot of different ways, but the bottom line here is that uh, inventory, if it goes the wrong way and builds up too fast and is too big, is becomes evil from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. It becomes very detrimental. So the point I was trying to get across is all of these factors, uh, starting with uh, tossing the JIT philosophy and totally abandoning that and going to a JIC philosophy, uh, driven by the bullwhip effect, which is uh, over-ordering to compensate for the demand increase, and then not taking into account the changes in the consumer moving from buying uh, services to goods and not balancing that out, um, and not thinking the consumer would go back to a more balanced approach of spending more money on services, meaning less on goods, um, all of that 
has uh, come to bear on the bike industry as we sit here uh, moving into August of 2022. There's a huge um, overhang. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm, what I'm thinking of is I'm, I'm thinking of this from Bike Shop Bob's perspective. So Bob owns a bike shop and it's a tough enough business anyway, isn't it? Like you said, it was a system that was working, but obviously I've worked for lots of bike shops and, you know, could see how difficult it was, you know, with, as you say, inventory is e evil. They've got all these bikes at the start of the year and they've got to sell them and often they get sold discounted at the end of the year and no actual money's been made. And I was listening to that excellent Nerd Alert podcast from Cycling Tips with James Hung and Co. recently, and there was a bike shop manager who was in New Mexico, and they had to be so diverse in their service lines just to keep going. So they were servicing cycle tourists, long distance hikers, and it was really about the service of what they offered. And he said, look, we're a, a Trek dealer, I think it was. We sell a five, $6,000 Trek. We don't make any money. Because of the amount of labor for the staff it took to sell that bike, they didn't make any money. And that really struck me. You know, you, you've got bikes that cost more than motorbikes and they're still selling them, isn't making any money on the sale and they're having to sell cliff bars mm -hmm. and, and things mm -hmm. to actually pay salaries. So when you've got this on top, what do you think the effect is going to be for Bike Shop Bob? Unfortunately for Bike Shop Bob, um, in England and the United States, um, and particularly the United States, is we're going to see some bike shops that, <clears throat> excuse me, that will be put out of business. Uh, it, it again, here's where the evil part comes in: um, is you got to pay the man for the for the goods. Mm -hmm. The bill comes due. Yeah. And uh, even if you're giving extended terms, the bill comes due. And you're correct. Uh, the NBDA just finished a cost of doing business study. They haven't done one since 2014. Um, but what happened in the United States is pre-COVID, the same scenario you cite, the typical, and I mean by that the, the median, the middle of the middle bike shop in the United States did not make money on the sale of a new bicycle period. The cost of doing business was higher than the margin that could be realized at the end of the day on that bike. Uh, however, during the COVID bike shops were able to change the metric and the typical bike shop that was surveyed um, in the, in the last uh, two months of 2021 show that uh, financially they did make money, a few points, on new bikes. Strangely enough, by the way, when you when you get into the NBDA data, they did not make money on e-bikes. Hmm. It's that same scenario where, where their cost of doing business was higher than the margins they realized on e-bikes, which were higher priced. But on regular bikes, it had gone up to where they were making money. Mm. And bike shops during the bike boom of uh, that so-called, so in quotes, by during the surge, as I call it, in 2020 and 21, um, realized good profitability. The profitability, in turn, was invested in inventory. Mm. 
a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. And that inventory sits today. And the bill for that inventory is coming due. It can't, it isn't being sold. So consequently, we're to bill, oh, by the way, bill's passed, but uh, bill's uh, philosophy of inventory is evil. Um, and it's evil because of a headline I just saw uh, from uh, the Wall Street Journal this morning um, in their logistics report. And I've got it in front of me here, so I'll read it to you. Business inventory woes are dragging down the U.S. economy. What the economists have now figured out is, as you're well aware, there was a report uh, yesterday that the U.S. economy has shrunk. Um, a good percentage of that shrink is due to the fact that, that there's all this inventory in the country. Some of that is bicycle inventory. And so the same uh, effect is occurring retailers, big and small. If you're holding too much inventory and you haven't paid for it, the bill is coming due and you can't sell it. The consumer demand is down. Unless you've got a very deep pocket, you're going to discount it. Discounting is not good, as Walmart and Target can tell you in the United States. And um, it's not good in the bike trades. It devalues the inventory. It devalues the inventory that the brands are holding. Mm-hmm. And then the whole you know process starts. And um, you can look very quickly um, at Sarah's Cycling Group. And I hate to say this, but they're probably one of the, the most public uh, faces of this in the last 30 days in the U.S. And I don't know if you know Sarah's Cycling Group uh, from the standpoint of the U.K. market, but they also, I believe, were um, handled by Madison, who we were talking about earlier. Um, Cyclops trainers... And uh, the Saris racks, um, and uh, they were also involved in um, uh, transportation product, uh, micromobility product. But at any rate, uh, their winter business uh, has been Cyclops for decades, trainers, high quality trainers, um, and with an international market. Um, less than a month ago, the big announcement from Saris was that they were going into the equivalent of a Chapter 7 in the United States, a liquidation. They had to sell the company in 60 days. And that's the biggest name so far. Uh, but if you look at what, what's happening in the retail trades here, and you're getting some of this now in the UK, is you've got one of our major brands, Trek, buying up retail stores, specialized, starting to buy up some retail, and a subsidiary of Pond, who bought Durrell, who now owns the Cannondale Sports Group in the United States, and also Pacific Cycles, which is their mass merchant division, um, Pond bought Mike's Bikes, a multi-store, specialty bike retailer in the San Francisco Bay Area, I think 12 stores. They did that before they, they concluded the deal to, to buy Cannondale Sports Group and Pacific Cycles. But uh, while we were speculating on did Pond buy this retail chain because they want to buy retail chains? Mike's Bikes announces that they bought a smaller chain in the Bay Area. So it's still an unknown. But you've got uh, the major brand in the specialty trade in the American bike business, Trek, who is now, according to Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, owns 500 stores or storefronts in the U.S., bike shop storefronts. 
Specialized, who owns a smaller number, probably a hundred or so, although I haven't seen the number attributed to them, both of whom want to go into Consumer Direct as a part of their overall program of selling that still includes bike shops. Um, Giant that's made the decision in this country not to go and buy bike shops or to go Consumer Direct or, or Consumer Direct from the standpoint of from a website to the consumer. And Cannondale, owned by Pond, that's a total unknown. We're not exactly sure where they're going. All of this stems from the same situation that Bob faced pre-COVID in the UK and the United States. They weren't making money on the sale of new bikes. To what are they going to do now um, as they come out post-COVID, or at least the third or third year of the COVID as it exists uh, with the uptick that's occurring in cases? But be that as it may. Uh, where does the bike shop end up in 2022 relative to this inventory overhang? And can they make money on the sale of new bikes, including e-bikes? The answer to that is Bob needs to do everything that is possible to reduce new bike inventory to reasonable levels. As uh, And I would say reasonable is go back to your pre-COVID inventory levels, um, anywhere from two to four units and inventory for everyone sold, and probably less than four, closer to three. Um, and uh, you can follow what we in the United States uh, in the shop trade call the Phillips rule. The Phillips rule is simple. Never, ever sell anything in your bike shop below your cost of doing business. And if you don't know the cost of doing business, NBDA will be publishing uh, the latest cost of doing business data shortly. They're just going through the cleanup on the data now, should have it available within the next two to three weeks. And certainly uh, the dealer, the shops in the UK can take advantage of that as well through um, the uh, the connection that the NBDA, NBDA has uh, with uh, CIN. And with that said, uh, it's a major problem, uh, mm. quite frankly, Sean, that, that Bob in the United States and Bob in England and, and Bob in France in Germany is going to have to give some very serious thought to. Yeah, and it's quite a minefield. I mean, just looking at, you know, my very small business in England with trained mechanics, and obviously our very small retail side is tools. If people train as mechanics, they want to buy tools. And, you know, for a long time, we just haven't held a stock of tools at all because all the demo products they're using every day in the training school. And then we have a fantastic drop shipping arrangement through our distributor and we can order the tools and they're with the consumer the next day. And we've never had it in inventory. So that's an awesome GIT system. But the problem we have, you know, right now, if a student's OK, sure, and I want to buy the mobile mechanic tool bundle, our bestseller, well, you can't. Because the main component of that, the Pedros Master Toolkit, is all sold out. And the Pedros Master Toolkit 4, it just isn't coming. You know, it was supposed to be coming. They developed it. It looks awesome. It's kind of Toolbox Wars-esque amazing. It's, it's been dropped from coming soon because they just can't get the product. It, you know, whether it's the production, whether it's the metal, like several tool companies I've told, I've spoke to recently, said they can't even get the high-grade steel for making tools. <laughs> then there's the shipping, the price of the shipping. It all comes in that, well, we just can't sell these tools. So we're going to have to look at other ways of making revenue. And it certainly is, you know, to adapt and manage, as you say in your article, you know, 
um, is increasingly difficult and it feels like a dance. And as you say, there's no return to normal here, is there? There's not. And I think that that's part of the advice that we've got to give Bob going forward. Um, and I'll, that's what my next article will be in our newsletter. Um, I think that, that the, the bike industry, bike shops, bike brands, the bike associations have to stop this mantra of, oh, when it returns to normal, when it goes, mm. there is no normal. Normal's gone. Yeah. Normal went away in all of these changes. There simply is no normal to go back to. There's only the future. And the future now is totally different. We live in an era of constant, continual disruption. And it's evidenced by the fact that um, you remember in 2021, we were all excited about the fact that, oh, we beat COVID, it's going away. Well, it's not. As my friend Yogi Berra, who I love to quote, he's gone now, but Yogi said, it ain't over till it's over. And so uh, we've got a situation where uh, we still have to deal with the ramifications of COVID, even, to become, even if it becomes endemic and becomes like the flu, it's going to be a major problem that we're going to have to plan around from a business standpoint. It's going to disrupt things. But more importantly, what uh, you've seen in Europe, we've seen in the United States, we're experiencing right now is climate change and the ramifications of the climate change relative to bicycle riding and bicycle sales. So that's one of the ongoing things that uh, is, at this point, just going to get worse. And, the, and uh, we in the United States uh, have finally made a breakthrough legislatively that's going to help. But we've seen the problems that can occur. Um, we've got the climate issue. We've got the whole issue of, of uh, pandemics and endemic diseases that are going to have to, have to be dealt with that uh, make it impossible to go back to a normal. In the United States, we also have a situation you don't have in Europe. And that is when people started to drive vehicles again, they started to run over people. Hmm. Our pedestrian bicycle cyclist death rate went up. And it's gone up uh, during the pandemic, and it's gone up uh, in the first uh, half of 2022 because driving habits changed, along with a lot of other habits, uh, not necessarily for the good. And it's something that the business, the industry has to deal with and work with municipalities. That change also is going to relate to the, to the climate issue and to the uh, growth of EVs both from the standpoint of electric cars and vehicles, as well as electric bikes, which by the way, as I said, is a, to me, is a huge opportunity in the market. Uh, we're only in the EV side at about 5% market penetration, just under that actually for the 2021 period. Uh, whereas uh, in Europe on the continent, many of the countries are at 40, 50% market penetration with e-bikes. So it's a totally oh, different yeah. uh, mix, but we're, it's becoming extremely popular and e-bikes have changed the whole face of the bicycle world in the sense that um, we no longer talk about ladies bikes or girls bikes. We have step through bikes. Hmm. Thanks to the, to the e-bike definitions. 
um, 20 inch bikes were BMX bikes. Today, 20 inch fat tire is uh, a direct to consumer juiced super 73 rad power bikes are just some of the brands that uh, are big in the 20 inch uh, diameter, four inch tires, fat tires. And uh, the people that are buying them are younger riders that don't care about proper fit, which is, you know, is a big deal in the shop trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's another change that's occurred that we can't go back to a normal because that normal doesn't exist anymore. But uh, we have the climate change. We've got the, the, the COVID and or the, you know, the, pan, uh, the pandemic endemic issues with disease. Um, we also, as you're well aware, have the ramifications that are affecting the supply chains uh, and the, the logistics side, the war in the Ukraine. Those types of, of total black swan events that crop up and change the economics uh, and the ramifications of changing the economics of the whole world not just Europe, not just what's occurred uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the Ukraine itself or the Black Sea area, but the whole world, because you're impacting the United States as well. And that's part of the other piece that we've got that uh, we have to be aware of here, and that's dealing with inflation and price increases. Not the yeah. least of which goes back to the punitive tariffs that were imposed back in the 2017-2018 period, which the current government in the United States is finally realizing is totally non-productive, but all it did was serve to increase consumer price and cost. So, and think, uh, I'm sorry, Jad, I don't mean to cut in, but you just- Oh, no, no, please do. Just made me think of something there we didn't have in the, in the show notes, as it were. And that is, do you think the industry is shooting itself in the foot as regards pricing? Because with, say, for example, looking on the road bike side, we've got the SRAM rival access massively raising the price of a mid-end bike. We've now got the Shimano 105Di2 massively raising the price of a mid-end bike. So we've already got prices really shooting high. Then we've got you know, that the, the manufacturers going, okay, guys, you're going to have more high-tech products, even for the standard equipment, not just top-end level. Um, mountain bikes, you can see a huge amount of high-tech equipment on there. So with the cost of living crisis and consumers having less money to spend or a lot less money to spend, and the cost of the product skyrocketing, skyrocketing even before inflation, should the industry maybe be looking at maybe a cheaper rival group set or one of five group set or equivalent mid-end product rather than a super duper, um, very expensive version? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If, if the industry is interested in uh, any kind of volume at all, the, mm. the top end creme de la creme, uh, and you know the customer, that's the, in the United States, that's the uh, primarily male high income professional college graduate portion of the market. That's part of what drove the industry in 2000 here to say, let's go for the sport as opposed to the activity. What came out during the, the uh, COVID years is a lot of families, a lot of mid and even lower income Americans wanted to ride bikes. Part of that new wave of, of uh, consumers that came in. So you're absolutely correct. I do believe the industry's shooting itself in the foot 
that high-end stuff has got a market, but you've got to look at it as, and this would go to, I guess I look at it as a Campagnola kind of an aura, you know, that there is an upper-end market. There is uh, that portion of the market that will follow the tour, uh, that will follow the gyro. Uh, you're aware in America, one of the big travel destinations uh, for uh, wealthy people in the U.S. is to come over for the Tour de France. Wow. And that the Trek Bicycle Company runs a company called Trek uh, Travel. Yep. And that's a big piece of the Trek business is to come over for the tour. And they, I'm sure they get a, they get a probably probably part of the deal is they get a tour of the uh, of the team bus. But that being beside the point, I mentioned Trek because uh, interestingly, uh, this past week, in fact uh, Thursday yesterday or Wednesday I guess it was the Trek bicycle company announced that for e-bikes it is now going into uh, rear hub drive and a lower price point uh, product. Hmm. And they have been in this country mid drive, as you're well aware, Bosch mid drive, yep. at seven, eight, nine thousand US, with the price going up because of inflation. They've just announced two bikes, uh, e bikes with rear hub, and I don't, I didn't get the name of the rear hub. I don't know if it's been announced. Um, and uh, hidden battery and down tube, and those bikes are going to be below two thousand five hundred. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be good for the volume. I can hear bike shop Bob wincing, though, because, of course, Bosch is just so fantastic for service and dealer support and everything. So um, yeah, it's, I don't know how good it is for Bob, but at this point, it's indicative of your point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So getting into the home manufacturing, then, we've seen real shifts towards home manufacturing from some major brands, you know, starting to massively invest in home manufacturing in Italy and such. We've seen the massive success of the the Portuguese bike industry, you know, lots of actual manufacturing being done in Portugal and the continued success of, of Orbea as part of the Mondragon cooperative movement in, in the Basque country. So do you think that home manufacturing then is part of a solution to this. I mean, interestingly, one of the, I think one of the ideas behind many of Trump's supporters was to bring manufacturing back. And that just makes sense to a lot of people. It's like, yeah, we need to make things here again. So do you think across the broad political spectrum, both under, you know, Biden and Trump in the States, for example, and elsewhere, do you think it just makes plain economic sense like in Portugal, where you've got all of these different companies making components, making frames, making forks, cooperating and working together to have not only a very vibrant local business, but then they can obviously lobby together and work together to promote themselves globally. I do. Um, you know, our our term for that is reshoring. Mm-hmm. Um and I absolutely am a supporter and have been a supporter for a good number of years. Um, yes, I think that makes economic sense, but, and the, the butt is huge. Um, <laughs> we do not have in the United States because we've gone, remember, we've gone three decades of no bicycle manufacturing here. Um, we have no support industry. We have no component industry, none. So the, 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 the guru in the United States, from the standpoint of, of the, the, 
the person that's put his money where his mouth is relative to reshoring is Arnold Kamler. Arnold Kamler is chairman of the board of Kent International. His son, Scott, is president of the company. Uh, Kent owns a facility in Manning, South Carolina, Bicycle Corporation of America. It's the only large assembly, bicycle assembly operation in the United States. Its uh, primary customer is Walmart. And the, the, the point there is, you know, economically is if you can make a, a bicycle for Walmart and make a profit at it, then you probably can, uh, there, there's hope for anybody that wants to manufacture in the United States. Mm-hmm. However, Arnold has to import his componentry. And he tried um, very hard to uh, get a cluster of component brands from China and Taiwan to come to the United States. And when he opened the Manning facility, um, he also uh, talked to the then governor of South Carolina uh, about support for this cluster of component manufacturers so that there would be component support. You didn't have, you don't have to import everything. Now it got, Part way along, but this was the these were the last years uh, of the pre of the pre Trump administration, um, and in the Trump administration there was another effort that uh, Arnold made to go directly to the Secretary of Commerce uh, Wilbur Ross, I believe was the gentleman, um, and uh, the other supporter of this effort in the United States is Bob Markovicius, who is the senior vice president of Specialized. And also uh, is uh, the designated and uh, appointed um, representative of the American bike industry to the U.S. Commerce Department, to the United States Special Trade Rep, and to the International Trade Commission, the ITC. Um, This is an appointment that uh, comes from the President of the United States. It is uh, one that requires uh, FBI background check and so on. So... Bob Markovicius represents the guy that uh, government goes to and asks that question. Do you, do you think we should reshore? Uh, Bob's responsibility is to research that in the bike industry and give a, a, a proper answer. He went with Scott Kamler and they invited me to a meeting with Wilbur Scott or Wilbur Ross. I'm sorry, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of Commerce. Um we unfortunately at the last minute couldn't meet with the secretary because he was called over to the white house, but we sat in his conference room, met with some of his key people, um, and made our presentation, which made eminent sense that the government of the United States needs to support, uh, the tax breaks and the incentives to bring the component manufacturers from China and Taiwan to the United States to set this cluster of component plants up to support the bicycle corporations of America, and and that existed at that point, and the others that will follow, because it makes economic sense to reshore a portion of your production, a portion of your supply chain. It makes more sense today than it made then. And by the way, the government didn't do anything, because part of what we asked the secretary to do is eliminate tariffs on componentry. Um, And of course, they went the other direction. They slapped on top of the 10% uh, average for a component, they slapped 25% punitives on. 
and 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 uh, in addition to the five and a half and eleven percent for bicycles, they slapped twenty five percent on, and for e bikes there was no tariff, and they slapped twenty five percent on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the excuse at the time being, by the way, this idiotic notion that oh the Chinese will pay for it, <laughs> they don't. The American consumer pays for it because the importer of record pays that pays that punitive tariff anyway. Besides that, and at at you know bottom line, Bob pays for it. Yeah, because the retailer has to buy it first yeah. before they resell it. Bob's customers. Pay Bob's for customers it. pay it. Yeah, pay the ultimate. Mm. So yes, it makes eminent sense, but now it becomes complex. Bob Markovicius is still the senior vice president uh, at Specialized. Arnold Kamler is still the uh, chairman of the board of Kent. Um, they're still running the plant in Manning um, and selling their their production from that plant at about. I would say they're at about 800 units that they assemble, 800,000 units per year that they assemble uh, for Walmart using imported componentry. Um, Arnold can tell you this story, but uh, he's also uh, given this to the press, so Brain covered this, and I think CIN as well. Um, When the Trump administration imposed the punitive tariffs, the Section 301s, Arnold had sitting in Shanghai a hundred robotic welders to TIG automatically TIG weld frames and forks. And he was about to import them and put them in the Manning plant, which has a powder coat finishing facility, which has a wheel building facility. It's got everything but frame manufacturing and fork manufacturing. Um, when the punitive tariffs hit, Arnold stopped the shipment decided to hold with what he had, which was an assembly operation, and wait and see what the government did to support this reshoring concept. Well, the Trump administration did nothing. The Biden administration is now really seriously thinking. Uh, the latest word out of the China reporter uh, that uh, Politico publishes is that now we're getting some serious thought on the administration side to doing away with the 301s and seriously investing in uh, different forms of American manufacturing, all starting with what the Congress did yesterday or day before yesterday relative to computer chips. So the you've got a very viable thought that some in the industry uh, have felt was... Uh, way overdue and much needed. But so far, uh, we have not had much support because note that when Bob Markovicius got this appointment with Secretary of Commerce Ross uh, back in 2017, 2018, whenever it was, um, it was Jay Townley, who was an independent, but also a great believer and promoter, and Scott Kamler from Ken International Mass Merchant Side that went with him to Washington. There are a lot of brands that were missing from that delegation to speak to the Secretary of Commerce about this topic. So um, I think what you're saying in reshoring and nearshoring will become very viable very soon Mm. because it is economically important. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, the Portuguese um, success, massive success in the last 20 years has been noticed. And we've mm-hmm. now got the, the new um, root assembly 
ambition to create a similar hub in Scotland. And while they haven't had much support from uh, Westminster government in London, there has been some quite serious interest from the Scottish government. So we know we can hope that it's possible that that could really grow something quite special in Scotland. Do you think that having government support is critical? And how how likely is it? Because, of course, when we're talking bike, bike advocacy, uh, as we found out with some of our previous guests, like Adam Tranter, you can feel like you're banging your head against a wall. It's like we need transport solutions and all you need is a bike or walking and people want flying taxis and funny, you know, uh, tubes with cars driving through them and such because it's more exciting. <laughs> but when we're talking about industry and employment and taxes this just makes so much sense one of the fascinating things about say um the mondragon cooperative of cooperatives in in northern spain in the basque country is how successfully those cooperatives served through the economic crisis of 2008 and covid not only as companies surviving as companies but their workers kept their jobs and of course that had a huge beneficial effect on the local economy and the national economy so do you think just ultimately money talks the hard economic benefits of this will win out or are their vested interests to keep things as they are as dysfunctional as it is <laughs> well, you raise a, an excellent point. I think in the United States, the support of the government is essential, the, the federal government. Yeah. And then and then down to the state level, the state governments. It's absolutely essential. Um, this is not unlike lithium-ion batteries and EVs. Um, the you know, Your situation in Europe is admirable. Uh, it's watched closely here in the U.S., but uh, Europe over the decades has maintained domestic manufacturing. The UK has maintained domestic manufacturing of bicycle product um, to a degree. To a prompt. I mean, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's different in the UK than it is in Germany, than it is in Italy. But overall, uh, the European community has done a much better job of policing using um, anti-dumping and the anti-dumping mechanisms than we in the U.S. have. Uh, as I said, we are totally import dependent. You are not. Your tariffs have, uh, in effect, forced the uh, Taiwanese and then the Chinese to come in country to build facilities inside of Europe or in the UK. But uh, it, it, you're, it's a different situation than we've got here. Um, we are going to need the support of the federal government for several reasons. And not the least of which right now is the fact that China, in our view, is going to be a high-risk place to do business for the American business people, um, perhaps even higher risk than for the Europeans. The, the relations, you know, our president just talked to the uh, president of China, Jin, uh, Jinxing, uh, Pierre, Jing, Xi Jinping, I'm sorry for slaughtering his name there, Xi Jinping, um, yesterday. And, uh, you know, their major concern is the dispute with Taiwan. Mm. Well, unfortunately, as it turns out, if we have a problem with China relative to bike manufacturing, the first place we go is Taiwan. Yeah. And the reason for that is that uh, Tony Lowe, former president of Giant, said some 
dozen years ago, but but he made the statement that 80, 85% of all of the Chinese bicycle business is owned or controlled by the Taiwanese. Well, there's some truth to that that remains today. So consequently, China and Taiwan for the bike industry is bound hip and and uh, and knee to, to each other. Um, they're bound because the Chinese bicycle business for export learned from the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese invested heavily at a time when it was not politically proper. So the conundrum we've got is in the United States, if we want to do bicycle manufacturing, an appreciable bicycle manufacturing presence in the U.S., it's dependent upon how we develop the expertise. And so consider this, that the major brands in the United States, who I love dearly, but let's take Trek and Specialized, have fine engineering departments, excellent engineering departments. So they could tell you what kind of bike they want, what kind of electric bike they want to design. They can design it, but quite frankly, they don't know how to make it. When I worked at Schwinn, we had a whole department in engineering that was engineering manufacturing. Yeah. They were oh, engineers yeah. that could design and make tool and dies. Yeah. See rally in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have that here. We've got to go. If an American company wants to uh, retool a whole new product, it's got to go or it's got to get on a Zoom call with the plant, the OEM plant, primarily in China, maybe in Cambodia and Vietnam at this point. But it's got to connect with them and it's got to have their engineers do the manufacturing engineering. That's one of the things that Arnold Kamler and Kent International have. While they don't make the frame and fork here, their partner, who is a 49% owner of their company, is a large Chinese bicycle manufacturing company who can make. And I remember that Arnold had 100 robotized TIG welding apparatus and machines waiting on the docks in Shanghai to ship here. They know how to make them. Hmm. So we, we need that connection. And in a bad environment, Arnold is going to take care of his relationship with his Chinese partner. Yep. But for the rest of the business, we're going to need the U.S. government to help us. And part of that help is you don't have to go to China. Go to Taiwan. <laughs> the engineers at Giant or Merida or Ideal who have taught the engineers in China can also teach the Americans. <laughs> but we've got to have the government support. And part of this is because uh, there's not the willingness, the stomach to do the capital investment. The only exception, Sean, may be the Europeans in the form of PON. I mean, you know PON's background, I'm sure. You know their, their, their history. Uh, they are a wealthy company with a deep pocket. They now are one of the major owners in the U.S. bike business because they own the old Durrell operation, which is the Cannondale Sports Group and Pacific Cycles. And they now also own Mike's Bikes, which not a huge retailer is still a large retailer that is in the process of buying more retail stores. 
So uh, on that topic, Pan, when they bought Durrell, reiterated that they were going to support the Durrell Assembly and Distribution Center that was being built in Savannah, Georgia, on the East Coast at an East Coast port. That was at the same time that uh, the Pond folks also said they were going to finish the Cannondale Assembly Distribution Center in Europe. As you remember, that was a big deal, that Cannondale had an assembly operation, distribution operation under Durrell. They'd invested money to expand that and move it, I believe, in Holland. Um, and they also at the same time said, we're going to invest in the U.S. with a Cannondale assembly and distribution center on the east coast of the United States. Pond, in making the acquisition, said, we endorse that, we continue that, we will make that happen. Um, we've heard no more about that since the purchase. But that goes into the category of if Pond is serious, and they are, as we speak, helping build out that facility financially, and are going to have um, a significant, if not major, bicycle assembly and distribution uh, facility on the east coast of the United States, that could easily translate to onshoring, reshoring. Yeah, and there'd be a lot. We don't of, know; it's unknown. Yeah, there'd be a lot but of that, happy that people out a, there, wouldn't there, to see yeah. handmade in the USA again on Cannondale frames. Exactly, and yeah. uh, so right now, Pond has not said any more. There's been nothing else in the trades here, but that's that could be another factor. But the bottom line is, yes, we're going to have to have governmental support. It'll bring American jobs. It will also uh, hit at a point where um, we're going to see growth in e-bikes, which are being noted as the most popular and probably uh, the bright spot in the whole EV world in the United States. And so uh, I think it's going to be good policy when we see this new energy bill that is now going to move through the Senate based on the agreement reached this week in the United States um, that uh, we're going to see finally a breakthrough in uh, the support of the Congress sending a major bill to the president to sign to help fund and to move forward uh, the EV portion of transportation and energy uh, and also climate, uh, the, uh, the, the fight to uh, regain control of the climate uh, change situation in this country. Yeah, which of course is more important than any of this. But hopefully the bike industry and everything from Bike Shop Bob and his customers all the way through to the big influencers that you're talking about and yourself can be part of that, Jay. Well, I think we're definitely going to have to get you back on the podcast because we're a little bit north of the usual um, episode lengths and it does feel like we're just getting started. But I will say for anyone listening who is really excited and interested, as I am listening to Jay, please do go to humanpoweredsolutions.com. Uh, if you go forward slash blog, there's loads of fantastic articles going into great depth about some of the subjects we've talked about today and more. Um, Jay, can people also speak to you on social media? They can. Um, and also, if they would like, um, they can email me directly at jay at humanpoweredsolutions.com. 
more than happy to uh, to trade emails, and they can go on social media. Uh, look up Jay Townley on uh, Facebook, and they'll find me there, and I'll be more than happy to uh, respond uh, as best I can. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jay. And for you guys listening out there, wherever you are in the world, do come on to Cycling Industry Chat on Facebook, which is Cycling Industry News' home for us discussing all of these issues, because I'm sure you've all got your own input and opinions that we'd love to hear. Come to cyclingindustry.news for updated articles and, of course, all of our back issue podcasts that we'd love to um, love you to hear. So, Jay, thanks again for joining us, and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. I hope so, Sean. I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you.